Sometimes in movies, there is an intense scene in a lawyer's office as the lawyer reads the family a deceased loved one's last will and testament. And sometimes the departed loved one had written something into his will that was very surprising. Perhaps he expresses a love for and a joy over a daughter, a love and a joy he never communicated very well when he was alive. And for the daughter to hear this is at once a source of joy and yet some pain. She may even find her eyes welling up with tears. Well, in the book of Nehemiah, something like that happens to the Israelites when they hear from God in a way that hadn't happened in generations. It's a quite moving scene. Today on Groundwork, we'll dig into that story. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Bast. And I'm Scott Jose. And Dave, this is the final of four programs of a series we've been doing on Ezra and Nehemiah. We've seen the, the larger story, some of the political intrigue of the Persian King Cyrus, who released Israel from captivity, and then some of the goings on with other Persian kings named Darius and Xerxes and Artaxerxes. And there's been a lot of up and down in yeah. the story, right? Things didn't go smoothly for right. Israel for a really long time. One of the themes that we've uh, pointed out, tried to stress really, I think for our encouragement for all of us is that the life of faith, it, it reminds me of the line, the course of true love never did run smoothly. Mm. Uh, the course of, of true faith never does run smoothly. And there's opposition from without. People may mock and sneer like Tobiah and Sanballat, you know, laughing at the effort to build the wall at first. Uh, there's opposition that can be more overt and physical threats. They threaten to kill uh, Nehemiah and uh, the rest of the people as they worked on rebuilding. Opposition from within when our own sin maybe causes uh, disruption or, or social relations break down or the lack of justice, basic justice in a community leads to tension. So right. we, we've seen all this, and uh, yet the people persevered. God saw them through and they, they stuck to it, too, with their own efforts. And as we get into the latter part of Nehemiah, and we're skipping a lot. There's, frankly, a lot in Ezra and Nehemiah that's kind of not all that inspiring. There's long lists. There's political correspondence between kings and emperors. and uh, But some interesting narrative things, Bob, and weave through all that. And now we're getting to Nehemiah 8. And even though we're in Nehemiah, Dave, uh, the passage we're about to hear uh, is involving Ezra yeah, right. uh, and the role of Ezra. Yeah, he's kind of the star. So we've kind of gotten things rebuilt and the walls and the temple is coming together. And then we read this in Nehemiah 8. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as they opened it, the people all stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord God, and all the people lifted up their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, 
because all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, no, go and enjoy choice foods and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites called the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. And all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because now they understand the words that have been made known to them. So there's a couple of interesting things in this passage. Uh, one is that the people all stood up when the, when the word of God was read, which some churches still do today. There are some other elements, and we, we're going to want to unpack this whole thing. But there's one phrase that really jumps out in this section, and that's the verse, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's probably the only passage from Nehemiah most people know, and most people probably don't know it's from Nehemiah. It is interesting. He says that to them because they do weep as they hear the law of God read to them. Why would they weep? Well, I think that we could think of a couple of reasons. One, maybe they sense the beauty of God's love for them, right? You, you give rules to people you love. Why do we have rules in our household? Uh, tell our kids, don't stick a fork in the electrical outlet. Look both ways before you cross the street. We want to keep them safe. You, you give rules to protect those whom you love. So in hearing the law of God, which doesn't sound like a, a, an emotional thing, uh, but it is if you realize that behind that is the love of God. And maybe they'd forgotten how much God loved them and it moved them to tears. Yeah. I mean, the law of God is a kind of comprehensive phrase that takes in a lot of the Bible. Right. But more narrowly, it's the Ten Commandments. And if you think of that passage where the Ten Commandments are given, which is in Exodus 20, it starts out, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. It doesn't start with do this, don't do that. It starts with, I'm the Lord your God. That's who I am. I love you. I've saved you. I've rescued you. And that tugged at the heartstrings of the people, certainly. Yep. A second reason, though, and we will see that this is certainly also validated by the further story, a second reason they might have wept is, well, they hadn't heard this in a long time, and they realized, oh boy, uh, God gave these rules to keep us safe and to help us have delight and flourishing in our life, and we haven't been living this way. So they saw the disconnect between the will of God and how they'd actually been living, and they felt guilty. They felt ashamed. Uh, and so there's some tears of contrition here as well. Frankly, I think our worship services all should contain a time of formal public confession of sin. Some churches maybe think of that as a downer. And, and the truth of it is, no, we need to be reminded uh, that we do fall short, and we need to acknowledge that before right. God. That's just honesty. Right. And we're going to see in the next segment that they do. They will have a time of confession. But not yet. Not yet. First, Nehemiah says, celebrate. Let's have a feast. Let's have a party. If you know some neighbors who, are, who don't have much food, would you please share your food and your drink with them? Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. We're here today to be grateful. We will confess soon. But first, let's celebrate. And indeed, as you say, Dave, hopefully that's true of all of our worship every week, that we should receive all over again the good news of the gospel, that God is love, and that God loves us, and that he's a gracious God. And what a wonderful thing for us uh, to experience. And that's what they wanted the people to focus on first. But coming up in just a minute, Dave, we'll take a look at what happens in the story next.
What does it mean to be a Christian and a fan of movies, music, television, and video games? I'm Josh Larson, editor of thinkchristian.net and host of the Think Christian podcast. I invite you to join us for faith-filled reflections on pop culture. Visit us at thinkchristian.net or search for the Think Christian podcast, where we'll be talking about what it means to be a follower of Christ, even in the playful moments of our lives. What does it look like to honor and serve God in your marriage and family? Visit FamilyFire.com to discover how you can better live out your faith in the context of your relationships. At FamilyFire.com, you'll find articles and devotions curated to encourage you to stoke the Holy Spirit's flame in your home. You'll also find an online community that can help you explore what it means to follow the Holy Spirit's lead in your family as a spouse, parent, or even an in-law. Join the community and be encouraged at FamilyFire.com. I'm Dave Bass along with Scott Jose, and you're listening to Groundwork, where today we're wrapping up a series on rebuilding the city, the walls of Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem after the disaster of the exile, and, and sort of thinking about how we need to rebuild at times in our lives and how to do that, how to go about that. So we've seen a number of themes related to that, and today we're looking at this wonderful passage primarily in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, where the people come together, they hear God's word, and they begin to weep and grieve out of this reminder that God does love them, but yes, they fall short, they're, they're still sinful, but they're told again and again, now, don't just cry, this is a holy day. I like that. Twice in this passage, they're told, because this day is holy, you shouldn't be grieving. Uh, it's just so special. It's like a holiday, I think. That's actually where that word comes from, right. holy day. Yep. So don't weep, don't grieve. Uh, God loves you. What a great reminder. And there's another aspect of this passage. We won't read it, but we'll summarize it, Dave. It's almost kind of funny because as Ezra read the law, the Pentateuch, books like Leviticus and so forth, the people, as they listen, they realize at one point they heard about this thing called the Festival of Booths that they were supposed to do every year. It was a festival that was to remind them of their wilderness time. Uh, and at that time, you build a temporary shelter in your front yard. It's sort of like you, you camp out in your front yard with a temporary shelter to remind you you know, of, of that. Well, as Ezra read the law, the people said, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's today. That's this time of the year. And so Nehemiah says, you're right, head to the hills, go get some sticks, build yourself a shelter. It, it would be almost like, Dave, suppose if you could even imagine this anymore, it would be like somebody forgot about Christmas. And all of a sudden they heard that in December, we're supposed to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And it's like, it is December. We got to yeah. go out and get a tree. Right. We, we got to go get some presents. We got to get an advent wreath. Um, it's like December 24th. Yeah. <laughs> we better hurry up and decorate the sanctuary. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. So let's go do that. And, and you realize, wow, how much they had forgotten. Right. They they weren't celebrating. And if they didn't celebrate tabernacles, they probably hadn't celebrated Passover either. Right. Uh, so they had, you know, they had lost hold of this precious deposit of their faith and and this precious practice. We we need rituals. We need festivals. Uh, to remind us. We need holy days, holidays. And so, uh, yeah, they go out and do that. They celebrate it as best they could. But then they come together a little bit later in the next chapter in Nehemiah 9, and they scheduled a special worship service just to confess as they felt they needed to. And, and so here's how it's described. On the 24th day of the same month, 
The Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So interesting. Uh, They spend half their time listening to more of Scripture and then the other half uh, confessing where they fall short from what they learn in Scripture. And Dave, you mentioned in the first segment that confession of sin has fallen on hard times in a lot of churches, not all, but there are a lot of churches where it's just rarely, if ever, done anymore, partly because people think it's kind of a downer. And of course, you can go too far and you can become a a real downer. It can become pathological. Yep. Yep. But it's supposed to lead to joy. After confession comes assurance, and through assurance comes that reminder of of God's grace uh, all over again. And, Dave, that's exactly what ends up happening in Nehemiah chapter 9. So after this period of sackcloth and ashes and dust on their heads and and so forth— then the people respond this way, and Nehemiah and Ezra are talking to the people, and they and they say together, Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, and the sea and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, and you've kept your promise because you are righteous. Yeah, interesting here. In the midst of this service of hearing the word and confessing their sins, they not only confess their sins, they confess the sins of their ancestors, it says. And they so identify with all the people of God through all the centuries that they identify with them in their sins, but they also then take that story as their story. So we go on reading in Nehemiah chapter 9, you saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you had performed among them. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them. By day, the pillar of cloud guided them on their path. The pillar of fire by night, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. They tell the whole story. They retell the whole, and it goes and on. it's their story, yeah. yeah. It it'll actually goes on. We're cutting it short. Uh, this goes on from verse 5 to verse 37 of Nehemiah, rehearsing the story so as to make it their story so that they situate themselves inside God's grand narrative. And you know, Dave, my colleague John Whitfleet of the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship has said that that is ideally what uh, all of our worship services should be. Every week we should recapitulate, we should retell our story from creation through redemption and on into the hope of the renewal of all things. This is our story. So the people confess their sins, they hear God's forgiveness, And then they respond by retelling the whole sacred story of the whole Bible. And that, right, locates them in that story. It locates them in that grace and goodness of God and fills them with joy. I love the thought that the whole story is our story. 
So yes, the bad parts of it, that's us too. We're, we're involved in that. Just because we weren't there, just because we didn't do it, doesn't mean, in fact, if you look all the way back to Nehemiah chapter one, almost the first thing Nehemiah does when he hears the bad news is he confesses the sins of the people of Israel. And Nehemiah had never even been to Jerusalem. Right. He, you know, he had grown up in Babylon, but he so identifies himself. And then the good parts of the story are ours too, the story of salvation. I love this insight from the great early 20th century theologian, J. Gresham Machen, who says that the way God changes people, you think it might be by moral exhortation, you know, just be good, do this, follow the law, here are the rules, do that. And, and Machen said, no, he doesn't do it that way. He changes people by telling them a story. And the climax of the story, which began with uh, Abraham and continued with Moses and, and the Exodus and, and then the return from exile, the climax happened on a cross and at an empty tomb when Jesus died and rose again. And that is their story, and that is now the continuation of that story into the era of the church. Uh, and it's great to remind ourselves of that all the time. But in just a moment, we're going to finish up this series uh, and the book of Nehemiah with just a few final observations, so stay tuned. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Best. And I'm Scott Jose. And Dave, well, we're finishing up this series on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, two books that maybe some of us don't turn to that often. And as we've said, there are some long stretches in those books that are... Uh, just a little less than inspiring, but the story is there. And Dave, we've been saying that there is great reason to be thankful that there was an Ezra, there was a Nehemiah, they were key leaders of Israel, they helped to begin rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. Uh, God raised them up for a very important purpose. We don't know a lot more about them. We don't know exactly where they ended up. Uh, the overall period of time, the history of Israel after the exile is a little bit murky. We get into the intertestamental period eventually, which is kind of a silent period before we get to the birth of Jesus. One thing we do know is that despite all the hope and optimism and some of the praise we just saw in Nehemiah 8 and 9, Israel's never really free again. They're still under the, the so the Babylonians conquered them. The Persians sent them back, but still ruled them. The Persians are going to go away soon, and Alexander the Great will come and rule over the Jews in Israel. Then the Romans come, and they will rule over Israel throughout Jesus' lifetime, throughout the early church, and up until the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which was the end of Israel thereafter, unless you count the new Israel that was formed after World War II yeah. in 1948. Yeah, and God had said to them, you know, you'll have a king to sit forever on the throne of David, uh, provide you obey and, and keep my covenant. The fact was they didn't. And even Zerubbabel, though he was a descendant of David, wasn't really a king. He was just a governor uh, under the Persians. So it wasn't until, spiritually speaking, 
King Jesus came and uh, set people free uh, to become the church, that uh, those promises would begin to be fulfilled. So a lot of stuff here, a lot of good things. We talked about the need to kind of persevere in the face of opposition, that the life of faith isn't always what you expected. It's not always easy. Uh, We looked at Nehemiah and some lessons for leadership that we can see in him and in uh, the way he, the wisdom with which he acted, the, the kind of the combination of prayer and faith on the one hand, but shrewd practical action on the other. So uh, all those things are great, I think, takeaways from uh, the study of these books. Right. And as the book closes, Nehemiah twice addresses God in chapter 13, and we'll just kind of combine here um, Nehemiah 13, verse 22, and then Nehemiah uh, uh, 13, verse 31, where he says, "'Remember me also for this, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Remember me with favor, my God.'" And so there's sort of uh, Nehemiah's final word, almost his epitaph, yeah. uh, the summary of his life. And it's an interesting combination because on the one hand, he's saying, God, look at all this stuff that I did. And, and I did it for you. I did it for your people. I gave my life, really, my, my best efforts to serve their welfare. So remember me for that. <laughs> but then he immediately pivots and says, oh, and especially remember me for your great love. Remember, show mercy to me according to your chesed, your great love. And there's one of the foundational words of the Bible, isn't it? It's a Hebrew word. It's been variously translated. We've talked about it in other programs. It's sometimes called love. Sometimes it's called loving kindness, uh, loving mercy. Steadfast love. Steadfast love. Covenant love. But it's all this little word chesed in Hebrew. Um, and particularly when you read the book of Psalms, it comes up all over the place as the number one trait of Israel's God for which they give God praise, because you are a God of chesed. And as we've suggested before, Dave, I think this is the Old Testament version of what in the New Testament is called grace, for it is by grace you have been saved, Paul says. It's all about grace. Uh, and, and in the New Testament, that's the Greek word charis, but I think this Old Testament word chesed means the same thing. God's merciful. God is love. And when we ask God to remember us according to his grace, according to his chesed, his loving kindness, we are banking on God's number one characteristic, yeah. that he's going to forgive us. We right. know we're not perfect. We know on our own we don't even deserve favor and mercy and forgiveness and yet all those things are ours in abundance now, particularly through Jesus Christ, that final anointed one in the line of David that the people of Israel were hoping for. You know, we called this series Rebuilding After Life Falls Apart. How do you do that? What, how do you face adverse circumstances? And certainly the people under Ezra and Nehemiah face plenty of those. But it's not a question simply of our strength and sort of holding on to God. You know, if your life falls apart, make sure you don't lose your grip on God. Hold on to God. Uh, Yeah, okay, but much more important is the fact that God holds on to us, and uh, that can give us confidence and hope. It makes me think of the promise of Jesus in John chapter 10 when he talks about his sheep who know him, and uh, he says, that no one can snatch them from my hand. Mm. I love that image that the Lord is holding on to us. Never mind about your grip on him. What matters more is his grip on us. And that's all suggested too by this idea of 
steadfast love, faithfulness. God will not let us go. The gospel is good news because of that very fact, Dave. If the gospel message is, it's up to you, Scott, it's up to you, Dave, hang on to God for dear life, that's bad news because I think I'm, I might lose my grip. But it's it's good news to know that we're in God's grip and that that is a, a grip of grace. And so the last line of the Ezra and Nehemiah cycle of stories, remember us with your gracious favor, O God. Uh, that's the prayer at the end of this story. But really, Dave, it's the prayer at the end of all of our stories. Uh, But because we know God will remember us, the end of our earthly stories is not the end. It's just the beginning. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, indeed. Well, thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We're your hosts, Dave Bast with Scott Jose, and we hope you'll join us again next time as we continue to look into Scripture as the foundation for our lives. Connect with us at groundworkonline.com, our website, You can share there what Groundwork means to you or tell us what you'd like to hear discussed on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacobs.